Hey, if you missed it, we announced that the Music Box series is launching on HBO on November 18th. You might remember we did a sneak preview this summer of the Woodstock 99 doc. That was the first film. We have five more films coming. The first one will be Jagged about Alanis Morissette. That is November 18th, Thursday night, HBO and on HBO Max right away. And then the next four Thursdays, DMX, Kenny G, Robert Stigwood, Juice World. I'm so proud of this series. Um, it's been a three-year odyssey and can't wait for everyone to watch it. If you want to watch the trailer, go to my Twitter feed and you will see it. Music Box, November 18th, HBO and HBO Max. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Monopoly Go. It's halftime and the scoreboard's not looking good. You're not sure you can pull out a win? That's when you say to yourself, it's time to get back in the game. Pull off some bank heists and take as much of my friend's money as I possibly can. That's right. The hit mobile game, Monopoly Go, lets you compete with your friends to be the biggest tycoon ever. I might do this with my high school friends. We used to play Monopoly all the time. It's the Monopoly you love, but on your phone anytime with tons of new twists, including leaderboards to compare your progress. There's so much to do. Play on countless dynamic Monopoly boards. Make your friends bankrupt by smashing their landmarks with a wrecking ball. Charge other players rent for your iconic properties. Maybe you'll even play against me. I'm great at Monopoly. You can even work with your friends to crack open community chests and in tournaments to get extra rewards. Get back out there. Put on your game face. Download Monopoly Go. Now free on the App Store or Google Play. We're also brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, where we hit our underdog parlay of the week on Million Dollar Picks last week. They boosted it to plus 800. And we made some people some money. Can we do it again? Stay tuned for Million Dollar Picks on Thursday. We'll be announcing which underdog parlay we're boosting. We'll do the rest of the Million Dollar Picks. Also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where on the rewatchables, it happened. We reeled in the director of Heat, Michael Mann. We did the three Heat, the third time we've done Heat, but we had to do it a third time because Michael Mann joined us and we broke down the film and it seemed like people really liked it. I love doing it. It was great talking to him. Will there ever be a four heat? I don't know. We might. This might be a mic drop at the three heat. But if you missed it, check out the rewatchables. Don't forget to check out the Prestige TV podcast as well. Joe House and I broke down the second episode of Kirby Enthusiasm there. Coming up, Big Waz, Wazney Lambry is going to come on to talk about the East. What do we make of the East? Teams going all different directions that we thought. We're going to talk about all of them, do a little Lakers, a little Zion. And then Jake Paul who has a big fight coming up next month, but I had never had a Paul brother on the pod. I wanted to find out about this whole influencer culture and how it ties into boxing and all that kind of stuff. So that is the podcast for today. First, our friends from Pearl Jam.
All right, Big Waz is here. I was going to do like a little solo NBA thing tonight, and then I looked at the schedule, and it was a disaster. And I, I called Waz. It was a little after 4 o'clock Pacific time. I'm like, let's just shoot the shit about NBA for a half hour because the games suck, and there's good storylines <laughs> that I care about. Let's, yeah. talk, uh, let's talk East first. Mm-hmm. The East, it, it, we're two weeks in. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not ready to say the East is wide open. And we know this is a marathon, not a sprint. But we know a couple things. We know James Harden is not in shape. Mm-hmm. We know Kyrie Irving isn't playing. <laughs> we know Milwaukee is already like guys are missing games, stuff like that. We know your Hawks mm-hmm. offensively do not look the same. But the biggest thing from the first two weeks is that Miami has the look. And I mm-hmm. didn't know they were going to do this. I thought this was going to be a cruise through the regular season, turn it on in the playoffs team. They kind of have the look. Do you see it? Yeah, I do see it. And obviously, we came into the season understanding that they would be one of the best, if not the best defensive team in the NBA. But I think on offense, what we're seeing with Kyle Lowry, what he's doing for their pace, um, we don't think of Kyle Lowry as a pace guy anymore. But even at age 34, 35, whatever he is, he's still a pace dude. And I think a lot of people had Tyler Hero having a comeback season but he's doing it. Um, my man Cooper Moorhead tweeted out a stat today where uh, he's under 30 minutes a game or he's at like 30 minutes a game, but he's at a 30% usage. And a lot of that is playmaking. And so he's taking a step offensively for them in a way where it's like, all right, we knew when you have P.J. Tucker, Kyle Lowry, uh, Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, you're going to defend the hell out of people, but offensively, they look better than we thought they would. I like how you called it a comeback season. It's his third year in the league, but it really was. He sucked <laughs> last year. <laughs> his exactly. rookie cards went in the tank. Everybody got yep. upset, and it, was, it seemed a little fluky, but there were signs in the preseason because he was mm-hmm. kicking ass, and they figured out how to use him. He comes off the bench as this, like, you know, like the old school Jamal Crawford kind of, he comes in, he takes over your offense, he does stuff. I'm with you on the pace. I didn't expect that from Lowry. I I guess I didn't read enough about the heat. I was, I took them seriously as a possible, you know, fringe contender when we got into the spring and maybe even a real contender. Some things gelled, but I didn't realize they were going to be as kind of dynamic. I didn't realize they were going to be a good league pass team. Yeah, and you know, the problem too, Bill, when you have a team that's as veteran-laden as them, we think of veteran teams as switch teams. Um, yeah. And we'll talk about the Hawks later on, but like veteran teams are generally switch teams. Like I think the Lakers are a switch team um, in the sense that it's just like, look, 82 games, my bones are old. Like yeah. I've been through the playoff crucible. I, I like I'm not one of these teams that thinks I know what it takes. Like I actually have the knowledge of what it takes to get through the grind of a postseason. I'm not doing this regular season stuff, but these guys have come out on a mission and they play with vigor every single night and it's it's been really cool to watch i was thinking about the six degrees of ben simmons <laughs> how <laughs> if jimmy butler liked playing with ben simmons wow i think he stays in philly right yeah because they had something they were pretty close that year and that was the best we've seen of simmons in the playoffs even though he wasn't he had all the limitations he had the other years but at least you know that that team was the closest, I think, out of all those Philly teams to actually looking like something. And then Butler, I don't know whether 
Philly was afraid because the more he had the ball, maybe that took some stuff away from Simmons and Bede. Maybe he sniffed something out with Simmons that he didn't like. If you read the tea leaves, it does seem like he didn't feel like those guys took it seriously enough, but he was way more team Embiid than team Simmons. And he goes to Miami and that opens the door. The Miami being a good team comes down to the band pick, which was a great pick. Yep. The coin flip with the Celtics to land in the spot that gets the Tyler pick. Mm. Butler deciding he doesn't like Philly the same year they have the calf space. And then them pulling off this Lowry thing because the heat culture and Jimmy and all that. And then you look at it, it's like, this is a pretty unusual way to build a contender. They didn't have the lottery pick in place. They didn't, you know, they didn't really completely tank. Pretty shrewd. I'm impressed. You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of us, you included, Bill, have been pretty, like, eye-rolly about this concept of heat culture. Uh, But at the same time, I think what it really means is about setting a pecking order. And in Jimmy's previous two stops, when it came to, like, the Sixers, and it's like, there's no established pecking order. You guys are kissing Ben Simmons' ass. This guy's not that good. Yeah, you're enabling him. Yeah, doesn't want it that bad. I'm out of here. This is ridiculous culturally. And the same could be said about Wiggins and Carl Towns. But Jimmy's like, why are we kowtowing to these kids? Uh, They're not that good. They don't take it seriously enough. This culture is ridiculous. Because, again, he started out with Tibbs. So then he goes to Miami and it's like, all right, see, this all makes sense. Like, we understand that everything flows from the top with Riley and Spolstra and all of them. And then, like, we established a culture where everybody's held accountable, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, like you said, they land on BAM. They have, the like, the type of place where the minute P.J. Tucker lands in their building, like, it's making sense, right? Like, he's the type of player that fits perfectly into what they're doing. And, you know, to get Tyler Hero to sort of define a role for him, that takes a a certain level of thinking and emotional Mm. intelligence on the part of the organization to be like, all right, here's where this piece perfectly fits. And then, you know, their player development stuff with people like Duncan Robinson is legendary. Good shooters. Yeah, Yeah. and it's funny because not everyone fits in with that team, right? Iguodala never seemed like he totally fit in. Bielitsa, you know, he finally finds a home in Golden State where... I'll never be able to say his name correctly. Um, but, you know, it's it's it seems like it's certain type of guys. But the Butler-Lauer thing's been great so far. It's really alpha doggy. There's like, they seem like they should be hanging out on a porch with their shirts <laughs> off. <laughs> just, like, just being alphas. But, you know, the thing about it is that they're both so psychotic about their profession that they feel like kindred spirits is like, We are so in tune, it's almost telepathic about what we think basketball is and how people should go about the business of basketball. That again, this this is no-brainers. Like these kinds of like Kyle Lowry, PJ Tucker, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, these guys are so obviously heat people. And so that it's working doesn't seem that, you know, you know, uh, crazy to me. However, you know. Well, Lowry's old. It's early and Lowry's old. We got got to go 34 weeks here. Right. Jimmy's had the injury stuff. Lowry is getting way older. Like, hopefully these guys hold up. But I'm not surprised that it's working. It makes sense. So 
I'm not ready to say I was wrong about the Heat as a regular season team, but it looks like I'm heading that way. I still, mm-hmm. I wonder about the older guys and especially if they're going right. to play at this pace, but I really like what I see from them. and They're really fun to watch. The Bulls, who I've seen a lot of, mm-hmm. um, I still don't love them defensively. Now, of course, the Celtics couldn't exploit it last night because of myriad strategy <laughs> problems that that team has. Oh my God, I don't even want to talk about them. I know we're going to. Um, defensively, a little better than I thought. I thought sure. they were going to be like a turnstile. Vucevic, though, like, of course, the Celtics only attacked him twice in the last eight minutes of the game when we needed baskets. I was going nuts. But the Caruso piece where they lose Patrick Williams, do you think like, oh, my God, they lost their best perimeter defender. Caruso came in. They can go a little small ballish with Caruso. Mm-hmm. Rosen, he's not awful defensively. He's, he's- I He's, he's he's a smart enough player that he's not yeah. going to be horribly out of position. But, you know, you run him through enough screens and stuff right. like that, it, it's it's over. But It's like yeah. how Jokic, Jokic knows he's where passable. to go and what right. to do, right? right. He's right. not he's not like a complete catastrophe. So, anyway, they're a little better defensive than I thought. But, man, that team gets good shots. It was really yeah. frustrating last night. Um, I, I liked all the shots they got when they were coming back. It wasn't just that Boston kind of fell apart a little bit and missed some wide open shots, things like that. But then you go on the other end and every time ball's moving around, ball's finding the right people. They have two guys they know they can go to. Vucevic didn't even play well last night. So I'm I'm a little higher on them than I think I was two weeks ago. Where do you stand? I was never low on the Bulls, although, you know, I was talking to Goff uh, earlier today on his show about the Bulls. And I think a couple of Bulls fans hit me. was like, oh, you hated on the move. I was like, I like I thought it made sense as far as DeRozan being, over the years, he's cultivated his game to become more of a playmaker. Like in San Antonio, he was their de facto point yep. guard. So he has that in him as far as elite playmaking on the ball type of stuff. And Levine was going to be Levine. He didn't have to shoulder the burden. And he could, when you got somebody who can shoot like that, it opens everything else up, right? Like he can be dangerous off the ball with his movement, not just cutting. Him as a screen setter, like that ter- 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 sends a defense into a tizzy, right? Like when a guy who's that good at shooting is himself setting amazing screens. We mm. saw We've seen that in Golden State over the years with both Steph and Klay Thompson where what they're doing off the ball sends defenses into a tailspin. And then, of course, the Lonzo Ball of it all where, Uh. you know, there's just something about his... His smarts on the court, his understanding of what defenses are trying to do, and his willingness to get it out quick, 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 quick in transition and just in the half court, where it's like he's not taking 20,000 dribbles and then giving it up. He's getting it, making a read, quick pass. It just all makes sense. And, you know, (laughs) we're here in L.A., Bill, so we, we understand the Caruso sanity stuff. In a different way, but I think people around the country was like, all right, this is just a Laker guy getting way more attention than he deserves. But no, um, Caruso comes on the court, he changed the complexion of the game. His physicality on defense, his instincts, his athleticism, where he's disrupting all kinds of things, and he's a menacing transition. I just think once they brought Ball and Caruso in, I loved their offseason. Obviously, some people were whatever they were about DeMar DeRozan and the price tag, et cetera, et cetera. But Ball and Caruso, that, it's just been incredible to watch them. I did not like the DeRozan trade, and I think I might have been wrong. Because right. it's not like they gave up anything. You know, right. they 
basically Thad Young's not even playing for the Spurs. Two thoughts. One, the Lonzo thing kills me because what the that's hell? how I wanted the Celtics summer to go. I wanted them to trade smart for Lonzo. I was hoping it was headed that way, that New Orleans was like, oh, smart, veteran presence for our guys and and that that would be the move. But it seems like that Bulls thing was done with Lonzo for mm-hmm. <laughs> long enough that they might get a tampering <laughs> sort of something. But it's a bummer because I just think Lonzo, fun to play with, mm-hmm. doesn't need the ball, is the yep. type of guy that would be perfect for the Celts. The Caruso thing, I was thinking about the bubble where you think like there's a lot of reasons they won. And I, I think Adande on my pod a couple of weeks ago made the key point about where they had this rest time where they were able to recharge their batteries, which was great for LeBron, right? He mm-hmm. had to go he was 10 amazing. weeks. He was, he was awesome amazing shape. in the bubble. Yeah. And that was physically about as good as he's ever going to look in a playoffs at the age he's at. But they had three wings yeah. that were pretty high level defenders, KCP, yeah. Danny Green, Caruso. And all those guys are now not on the Lakers. I don't want to do a Lakers tangent, but they have no wings now. They have nobody (laughs) to defend really anybody. And they just threw that away. And it's weird to me that they didn't understand. Like, I I think a pretty big piece of why they won, other than having Davis and LeBron, was the flexibility they had defensively with those perimeter guys. I mean, the only thing I've heard trotted out with Caruso, because Caruso just seemed felt like a money dump at the time that was just yeah completely unnecessary but they said in order to get guys like um monk and other people to come in on really cheap deals was that the promised them playing time and so in order to get a few guys for the one they had to let caruso go i just thought it but was but they insane. picked they picked court and tucker over him though uh, which again That's where I I have a problem. I I don't know. If you just look at the lineup data of LeBron and Caruso on the court together over the last few years, they are just smoking people. He became, like, one of the best teammates to put on the floor next to LeBron. Like, what they would, what him, LeBron, and AD would accomplish in transition is was just amazing. And it was another way for the Lakers to generate buckets while not having to be in the half court all the time. And we know over the years, people did the concern trolling about their shooting, which some of it, some of it was warranted, but for me, it was just like, this This unit is so elite on defense, they're constantly getting runouts, constantly getting transition buckets. They make up for it in efficiency because they're so good on a transition and they're getting easy baskets, etc. But yeah, the Caruso thing, I still continue to think that's a crime. Like, that guy should have never left the Lakers building. Well, and it's one of those where you see this happen in the NBA. You see the NFL, too. The guy who was on a championship team, the role player, who ends up getting overpaid in free agency by the team who's trying to like, oh, we're going to bring this guy in. He knows how to win. It's usually a disaster. It doesn't feel like a disaster in this case. The Patrick Williams thing really sucks sucks for them, though, because I, you know, but then they had guys yesterday I've never heard of who were making big shots. I I had Chicago. I think the over-under was 42 and a half. I think I went under. The big mistake I made was the Celts. The Celts are a lottery team. (laughs) This is, they are, they're a lottery team. This is a roster that doesn't make sense, that doesn't like playing basketball with each other. And they threw this new coach in who I have no idea if Adoka is going to be good at some point in his life, Mm -hmm. but he's learning how to be a head coach in real time Mm -hmm. as this season is starting to slip away a couple weeks in. And we have Jason Tatum here 
you know, still recruiting Bradley Beal. It's like, worry about your own fucking team, dude. You're 23. You've never made a finals. You're, you're not like LeBron in 2013 recruiting people for the, for the three-peat. Right. You've, you've barely done anything yet. Right. Like, worry about the guys you have. You have a good team. Stop right. flirting with Bradley Beal. My dad was so upset Saturday night. They lose double OT. And it's like, <laughs> cut it right after. Tatum and Beal have to have their whole hug fest. It's like, get a, get fucking over it. Go to the locker room. Deal with the loss. It, it, this has been, I hate this season was. Yeah. Don't, Kyle, don't send this to the social team. I don't want this social clip. <laughs> I'm angry. I'm hurt. Don't exploit me for social media views. I'm upset. Look, it, 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 there's so much going on, and I think the Jimmy Butler stuff is is instructive, right? In the sense that the hierarchy on that team is a weird one because Marcus Smart was always the teacher's pet with, um, with Brad Stevens. Stevens. And the other two guys were the best players, but Marcus Smart was also like the, I hate using this term, but he was the alpha in the locker room where he was like the soul of the team. He was like the spiritual leader of the team, but he's by far not the best player. And your two best guys kind of seem like they don't really care to be those kinds of dudes. They don't really care to be getting in nobody's face or yelling right. in the locker room or it's throwing true. something down. They want to come in, do their job and leave. And so... Because that leadership vacuum was filled by a guy who ideally is the fourth or fifth best player on a really good team, I think you see the difficulty. That's pushing it. And right. And, yeah, Bill, stop. He's got his PR is like eight right now. He's re really like an offensive liability. And he's like, I need more shots. Right. And and so it, you have a situation in a game where, sure, they scored 11 points in the fourth quarter, but they gave up 40. In a game, like, I just feel like as somebody with any level of self-awareness to come out after a game where you give up 130 in regulation to say the problem is the shot distribution of your team. Also, I went and watched the second half again. They got mostly good shots and good drives. They just missed the shots. They didn't hustle back on D a couple times and they don't play well together. And then as things break down, they walk the ball off the court. They dump it to Tatum, 25 feet from the basket. Everybody kind of stands around. And then he tries to decide what to do. The smart thing, though, I, I always watch the visiting announcers when I watch the Celts, mm -hmm. if, I, if, if I'm catching up. Sure. And they're always like, Marcus Smart, it's the heart and soul of the Celtics team. It's like, we haven't had a heart and a soul in 18 months. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's part of the problem. We yeah. have no heart and no soul. We roll Basically, over, over and over that, again. Since that loss to the Heat in the bubble, um, it's been a disaster. Uh, for these guys. And, you know, again, and, and I mentioned this with Jason as well, it's like all of the hand-wringing and ass-kissing and the untouchability of Brown and Tatum, which I'm not saying you trade these guys tomorrow, but that's why I was always like, kind of like, just like, I mean, really? These guys are untouchable. I, I think when you become a superstar, right? Like you are, when you become the Hardens, the LeBrons, the the best players in the league, these ball-dominant guys. The only thing that Marcus Smart does have a point about, you are elite at playmaking. You are right. elite make at Make other making, people better. Make other people better. It's not just that you hit the guy on the short roll. It's that you hit the guy on the weak side corner with that one bullet pass, one pass as the defense is shaded towards you, 
open corner three, right? Like when you're making those level of plays and those level of reads, that's what makes you a superstar. And God bless Brown. I love Brown. I've actually been hashtag, you know, Brown over Tatum trolley on the internet for years now. I love his game, but neither him nor Tatum have elevated their playmaking on the ball to the level that would, you know, demand that these guys get treated like these upper echelon superstar type of guys in the league. And, you know, and the, the, the honest truth is like Marcus Smart is saying the right thing, but it can't be you that's saying it. Because like, bro, you're like the sixth best player on the team. You're taking 30 footers, seven of them each game. Like you got to, you got to miss me, Marcus Smart. Also, the reason they self-destructed in that game, I'm going to tell you right after the break. All right, come back just to put a bow in the Celtics convo. The part that frightened me the most with the Marcus Smart comments after the game, the heart and soul of the team, was he didn't even have the right reason they lost the game. <laughs> the ball did move. They, they, Josh Richardson, who I still don't know why they traded for him. He, he hasn't been good in two and a half years. They mm -hmm. trade for him. They gave him a one-year extension. He's out there for 25 minutes last night. He was minus 21. And that only told half the story. He missed over and over again, wide open threes. And then at some point when he's out there and smarts out there at the same time, Chicago is like, cool, we don't have to guard either of these guys. We're good. We're just going to pack in. We're going to double Tatum and we're going to make this really hard for you. And thank God you're not putting Vucevic in a pick and roll. We're screwed because we did that twice in eight minutes. Um, the, the lack of like a real above average point guard. I like Schroeder. Mm -hmm. But he's he's a six-man trick-or-treat guy. Smart yeah. is a six-man trick-or-treat guy. Those guys are both out there in crunch time. And then it's like, oh, no wonder we had 11 points in the fourth quarter because we have two trick-or-treat guards. It, it's the calibration of this team is off. And the thing that drives me nuts is that Neesmith's not playing because I actually think he has a chance to be good. And they're playing Richardson over him. I know where I, know where I stand on Richardson. So on top of it, you have Stevens who is a really good coach who I guess got burned out on this roster and vice versa. But we had a good coach last year and a team that kind of underperformed for him. And I get it. And now we're starting over with a new coach who's trying to figure out who he is. He stands for three hours, like a football defensive coordinator on the sideline. It's like, well, that every other successful coach I is way more <laughs> calm than this dude, but it's game seven. He called them out for their intensity twice last week. It's like, it's, October. We just started the season. We're having intensity issues. So the fact they're two and five, they've lost every close game except for the Charlotte one that they should have lost. But LaMelo's taken 30 footers and it's not great. Was we have like the seventh and eighth scores in the league right now. Brown and Tatum are averaging like 53 or 54 points combined, something like that. Like you shouldn't be two and five if you have two offensive players like that. To me, that's the worst part of this. Basically, offensively, they're doing what the Clippers thought they were getting with Kawhi and George, right? It's like, we'll get Kawhi and George. They'll score 53 to 55 points a game and play great D in the other end. The Celtics kind of have that, and they're still not good. Yeah, they they defensively, they're a weird team still. They're 30th um, in points. Points allowed. 30th that, in points allowed on D. That is just something you was just unheard of, especially when Stevens first took over the team. Like, that was kind of the identity of the team was that they were going to be elite on defense every single year. That's just no longer the case. Like, the fact that they're thinking to join up defensively, that's what's got to be the most disheartening part about all of this because 
Was Brown? they've given up more points than OKC, who plays Poku <laughs> and Josh Giddy. <laughs> OKC is better defensively. I mean, what are uh, we talking about? Poku and, plays 20 minutes a game for OKC. They, they're better defensively. Yeah, and, you know, your wing rotation are guys with big defensive uh, um, reputations, right? Like, even Jason Tatum at this point has a good defensive reputation. Brown's considered an elite wing defender. You know, Marcus Smart, people were talking him for defensive play of the year type of stuff. Um, uh, at not, if, past, not if you're watching him every day. Past points of his career. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's wild to watch them just be this bad on defense, right? Like, that was the point of bringing Big Al back. That was the point of... Big Al's been good. I actually... Yeah. I He's been... He's exceeded my expectations, and he still has some legs, which I was surprised by. Yeah, and Time Lord, like, I don't know. When Ugh. I watch him, like, I feel like he has all the tools and the makings of a dominant defensive player. Like, I've seen him swallow up, you know, possessions where he switched out onto a guard very late and he couldn't do anything. When I've seen him protect the rim, it just doesn't work out um, on a possession-by-possession possession basis. Like, he has you know moments where you think he's Bill Russell damn near. I was going to say Time Lord is the classic. You could make an awesome YouTube clip of him. Right. Mm -hmm. And you could make a YouTube clip that makes it look like he's Darko Milicic, <laughs> Milicic in 2005. So you where could, do we You could make two. Where do we go from here, Bill? I want like, what would you like to see the team I, do? Well, I know. So the best thing that could happen for them right now is the Patriots keep winning. Because <laughs> the AFC is wide open for the Pats right now. It's just sure. over and over again. Things are moving toward the Pats being a sleeper. And the Red Sox, you know, maybe signing a big free agent, something like that. But the, the longer that people in Boston are just staring at this team, the Tatum Brown stuff's going to start. Bob yeah. Ryan said it on my, we, when he came on my pod last week, he brought it up and I was surprised. But I was kind of like, this sounds, this is something my dad's been saying. Are we sure these guys belong on the same team? Hmm. Are they redundant? Do they make hmm. each other better? Is there too much your turn, my turn? Are they, can you have two swing guys in this day and age with the way we play basketball now that kind of don't really make anyone better, but they're great players. They're, everyone would want them on their team. Do they make sense together? And it's the first time in the last week that I've been really thinking about, do these guys play well together? So that's what, that's what I'm watching from now on. They're two and five. I think they could easily be five and two. I'm not going to go crazy, but I am watching that now in the back of my head. I'm watching how they play together, how they interact on the court and things that I just wasn't doing last year. Yeah, I, I just tend to disagree with that. I think the problem is that neither one of them is as good as the Celtics need them to be for it to ultimately matter, right? Like I think about, like, let's just say you replace Tim Hardaway Jr. with Jalen Brown. Like it's obvious that that works with Luka yes. Doncic, right? Because it's like... Right. Oh, we have another one-on-one -on -one breakdown guy, and Luca does all of the playmaking, setting guys up in between all of that, while also being somebody who breaks people down one-on-one, -on -one, right? I think if right. you had the guy who did the job that you need of soaking up possessions and finding people on a um, consistent basis, then it would work more. Well, but it's basically Kyle Lowry, right? Like if they exactly, got Kyle Lowry that summer, exactly. that last summer, not that they had a chance. Setter. Yeah. Right. It's just like the, the super elite guys wear all of these hats, like LeBron, Luka, 
um, KD, uh, you know, Harden b- before his hammy he turned into right. mush. But that's not Brown or Tatum. They almost no, need like that not. third guy. But yeah. the pro- part of the problem with this team is I think some people think Smart is that guy, and that I'm just telling you, he's not. <laughs> he's like not. he's just not. I listen to the announcers on the other team, and they he's think not. he's. He's they not. do the heart and soul thing. He's I like not an smart. all-star. He's not a borderline all-star. Like he's if, great. If, he's great in a playoff series. He's going to go to another team at some point, and he'll be awesome, and he'll be a big part of some playoff run, and people will be like, oh, my God, I can't believe how great this guy is. That's going to be his destiny with this. I don't think he's long for the team. I really don't. Yeah, he has to play with a ball-dominant guy who actually can find people, right? I think, like, like Marcus Smart would play perfectly next to LeBron. He'd be like a kind of souped-up version of AC, right? Where it's like, all right, you're doing this stuff in very, like, spot duty. Most of the time when you're on the court, you're with a guy who is masterful at table setting. Because he would scale it back because exactly. the guy's so great, he's not going to exactly. think like, all right, now here's my turn. The, I thought right. him him calling out those guys yesterday was crazy. That was a crazy <laughs> thing to do. It really was. It's like you're just starting a shitstorm. He's smart <laughs> enough to know not to do that. But he's been empowered to do it basically his whole tenure there. And so yeah, it's how true. do you get him to stop doing that in that building? Yeah. Um. <laughs> The Hawks. Let's hit them quick. I'm not, by the way, just to put a bow on the Celts, I'm not writing off the season. I'm not panicking yet. They still have two really good players who are both probably going to make the all-star team. Yeah. And the foundation is there. I, I would still rather have the talent that this team has over a lot of other teams. I just don't understand why they're so hard to watch. But I think two weeks from now, we'll know more. The Hawks, I, I'm going to throw this theory at you. Is it a too many guys issue? I said this. I remember I had Daryl Morey on once and I talked about this where he got really mad at me. There was this one Houston Rockets here and I was like, I think you have too many guys. He was like, that's absurd. How do you have too many guys? (laughs) It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's like saying you have too much money. Like, that's ridiculous. I'm like, eh. So only 240 minutes in a basketball game for a roster to play and you have 10 guys who think they're 30 to 35 minute guys. It's going to be a problem. I wonder with the Hawks, do they have, with the 240-minute rule, do they have too many guys who think they should be playing 30 to 35 minutes? The minutes thing is interesting. The reason why I don't worry about it is because it feels like pretty defined roles in the sense that the second best player is John Collins, and he's not a ball-dominant person, Mm. right? And I'm watching him last night against a pretty damn good Wizards team. And Collins does everything that you need from him. He plays so physically on both ends of the court, right? When they try to, like... Because the pick and roll with him and Trey Young is so hard to defend because he's such a vertical spacing guy. He's And he's a pick and pop guy threat. And so a lot of times teams are like, all right, our best option here is probably to switch our guard onto him. And John Collins is like, I'm not having any of that. Like, you put a guard on me, I'm right. bustling this little guy up, and I'm putting him under the basket, I'm getting fouled. Then he's catching the ball on the short roll, and he's, he's got this interior passing synergy with Capella that I'm just like, holy moly. I think... So you like the ceiling. I love it because the only people who might have a gripe about... Their touches are Hunter and Cam Reddish, where it's just like, mm, excuse me, 
<laughs> like, you can cry about it, but we don't actually have to take you seriously. Quarter got paid already. Um, Bogey's already paid. And, yeah. you know, all these so other So Reddish guys, and Hunter are the issues. Like, the only potentially. ones who could potentially come through and say, oh, I feel a way about my role on the team. Everybody else kind of understands what they need to do. And offensively, I just think they're so explosive. Like, there was just a back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back possessions where Trey hits a freaking 30-footer, then Bogey hits one, then they get one in transition. I'm like, this is the type of explosion on offense of how you blow teams out. What I'm worried about is... Because they're one of those teams that are so talented offensively. I wonder if they have the mindset to put it together every night on defense. Last night they had stretches against the Wizards where I was just like, oh, this is looking amazing, right? Mm. Like Collins on help side, Collins on switches, Capella protecting the rim. Um, just just huge wings in Hunter and um and Reddish, like in the passing lanes. And I'm just like, oh, this is making me dizzy. I'm just, I'm just loving this, right? But I wonder if they're gonna be able to have the mentality defensively, because you know, I think they're gonna score against anybody in a playoff series, but defensively, if they're not taking it serious enough, that's where they're gonna, you know, lose games. That game against Philly the other night, where Philly just blows them out, they just straight up didn't compete on defense straight up and down right like and a lot of times that happens to teams that think that they're offensively unstoppable so that's what I'm worried about with the Hawks but as you can probably tell Bill I'm really excited about this team <laughs> yeah well look the East is Milwaukee is in my opinion is a safe bet they're the top yeah. team they're the easiest mm -hmm. pick I have real concerns about Brooklyn yeah. um, I don't like the way Harden looks at all I can't believe he's playing himself <laughs> into shape <laughs> it's like, well, I just had the hammy injury. It's like, was it just like, wasn't that in like May? What? Like, if you go, go look at Houston pictures of him from five years ago. Like he's, he looks like he has a bodysuit on. You're a fucking <laughs> professional athlete. You make 35 million a year. Get in shape. He, he's, he's like, I'm playing myself in shape. I feel better. It's like, we're, that's why we have, we call it the preseason, James. So you have that. You, Kyrie's out. We don't know. Not seen him all year. Blake Griffin looks washed. Yeah. Like, it looks like it might be done. Yeah. Um, Millsap's been washed for two, yeah, three years. He, nice guy. But yeah. Denver couldn't put him out there when it actually mattered. And I don't know. I just think that team, Durant's, Durant's shooting 58%, by the way, um, looks yeah. as good as he's ever looked. And they're going to be fine because Harden will eventually get in shape. But um, I think the East has gotten better. And I don't think they're as scary as they were last year, especially without Kyrie. Yeah, you know what's so funny why I got a little bit worried? It was from a Harding quote, and from him saying, like, yeah, I would love to go out there and score 40, but, you know, and he's making excuses where it's like, Ooh. James Harden has never been somebody who acknowledges a deficiency in public. That's never been something that he's done. So for him to say that, I'm like, man, maybe he's thinking in his head, like, I don't have it in me to be break It's like guys the Tony Soprano when Tony Soprano got beaten up by Bobby Bacala. Right. Yeah. So like, well, you know, I had the heart thing. Right. right. I'm older. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, like, you know, Bobby, let's face it, like 10 years ago, you would have yeah. had a shot, like, type of thing. <laughs> but like, it, like to hear Harden admit that, it makes me wonder. Like, man, is he going to be able to beat guys one on one? Because I think that's what drove the entire offense Dude, when he was. He taking can't. It. He he's yeah. he doesn't have this now. Will it come back? I don't know. But I watched that whole game on Friday night. And I was like stunned because he actually he put up decent stats, 
But the combo of taking the rule away that he lived on, I, d- I don't think he blows by people the same way. That's Especially what I'm saying. when you're watching some of the other guys in the league, like LaMelo, who just seem like they can go by anyone they want at any given time, which is what Harden used to be able to do. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it the same way this year. And he's older, you know, he's 2008 draft. Yeah, if he's or nine, not, I can't remember. If he's not getting a step on guys and therefore making the defense react and, you know, basically puncturing the defense and creating these creases and passing lanes for, you know, him being one of the greatest passes we've ever seen, then he's just, he doesn't have the same effect, right? Like the, the, the concept of James Harden is that like, all right, I can attack anybody you send to me one-on-one, whether that be by getting them in foul trouble or creating the space for a great shot or just getting, you know, to the rack for a great, um, Uh, layup or whatever the case may be and then through that like I'm making the defense react to all of my movements from my first step etc etc and I have that next level court vision that we said you know Tatum and Brown don't possess Um, again that's predicated on beating the man in front of you right like I and and I think we're going to talk about the Lakers I watched that Memphis game and I was just like, Jesus, they're getting murdered at the point of attack. Like, the John Morant, just any time he wanted to get to a place, it didn't matter who was in front of him, he was getting there. Um, He was getting, they were killing the Lakers at the point of attack. Like, if Harding can't beat defenders at the point of attack, this Brooklyn thing becomes way less overwhelming really quickly. And we'll see with Kyrie. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? But they're just it just doesn't seem the same. And I, I think it a lot about Durant, like what a big bet he made with this Brooklyn situation. He loses year one because he's hurt year two foot on the line, bad injuries. Now we're in year three. And I, you would have thought at some point this would have at least felt a tiny bit like the 2017 Warriors. But the irony with this team is the only time it really felt that way was that one Boston series right before everybody got hurt. Mm-hmm. Remember? Yeah. When it was like, oh my God, this team yeah. can score 20 points in four <laughs> minutes anytime it wants. What are right. we watching? And yeah. then it was gone and it's never come back. And then Kyrie got hurt because he gets hurt yep. every single year. And, yep. you know, Harden was dealing with the hammy. And now we're back into this. And again, like what he said makes sense, right? It's like it's one of those injuries that rest is basically the answer. I had an entire offseason of rest. Not that he wouldn't have been resting or <laughs> leisurely going to Fashion Week in Paris or whatever without yep. that. But, you know, he has an excuse that makes sense. We'll see if he regains his explosion or not. But it was it was telling to him, say, I want to go out and score 40. Like, that's not Harden's public posture ever. He's always supremely confident in his rhetoric anyway. Uh, to hear him just say like, yeah, you know, I, I didn't have an offseason. I don't know. It's just, yeah. that, hey, that's tough. Hey, James, you've played in five finals games in your career and you lost four of them and you got your ass kicked by LeBron in 2012. <laughs> Maybe get in shape. Um, before we go, Lakers, Lakers just quick that I was never a total believer in the team. I went under for them. I felt like the West was open. I wasn't sure who was going to, who was going to be. I'm still not. Um, but that I, that's a team that feels like there's more moves coming. So I don't want to pour dirt on, Oh, it's not going to happen. I don't think there's any way this is the team they're going to have three months from now. This day I've said it, before I'm going to say it again, this feels very 2018 Cavaliers-ish to me for the team they started with in October, November versus the team they have in March 
I think will look different. What do you think on that? Yeah, it's, man, it's kind of startling to watch them for the first time in the Vogel era just not be good at all on defense. Like, last year was crazy. With no, with no path. It's not right. like, oh, this, oh, Malik Mock will get better. He's no. like 120 pounds. And it's like, Ariza's not going to be save you. No. Like, you know, Kendrick Nunn's not going to save you with their perimeter defense. Um, So watch it just straight up not work. Whereas last year, they AD went down. And I think in the span of games that AD didn't play, they were the number one defense in the um NBA um in defensive yeah. efficiency. To watch it this year, where it's just like, again, at the point of attack, perimeter defense, it's a problem, right? Yeah. Like it's it's a problem. And, you know, Bazemore is whatever. He is what he is. And Monk is what he is. But these guys, that's not the answer as a perimeter defender. And Westbrook, like, he just hasn't shown uh, want to to be any good whatsoever at being a resistance. Well, for five years. Right, exactly. It's been so long since he's shown any signs of that. It's crazy. But, you know, again, at the same time, I watch the Cavs who are like have shown themselves to be a pretty competent, plucky team. And, you know, down LeBron, the stretch. LeBron big boyed them in that game. Yeah. It was, it was impressive. Like, yeah. Like he's LeBron, like, oh, Mobley, I'm hearing good things about you. I'm going to yeah, embarrass you in the fourth exactly. quarter. Exactly. Like at the end of the game, when LeBron's like, all right, let's put these guys away. No DJ, no Dwight in. It's AD at center. LeBron's like, let's just run pick and roll. Let's just keep doing that. This is one of the most impossible plays to defend in the NBA. And I'm you know like, was, how can I be like worried about this team when they have these two dudes? I felt the same way. You know what was great about that? Mobley, who is so gifted. I mean, I like we, Kyle Mann and I did a thing on Thursday about comparing him to KG and his instincts defensively. And then LeBron's big boy in them with with AD and they're running that pick and roll and Moby's doing the right things. He's just never seen the speed and strength that mm -hmm. that play has been run with. So he's, he's jumping off at the right times. He's doing all the things that have probably worked for his entire basketball life. And it's like, no, no, that that's Anthony Davis. <laughs> right. He's going to be two feet ahead of where you thought. And that's LeBron James. If he gets a half inch on you, now he's going to put his shoulder and you're done. Yeah. And it was it was a really interesting learning experience. I would encourage people to go back and watch it on if you have the NBA app. They're just they kind of put him in the torture chamber, and he wasn't necessarily doing the wrong things. It was just like it's oh just wow one of okay the this is the pros to guard right like it's like AD it, like the way you have to defend it as the guy who's defending AD as a screener. If you know that he has the ability to pop or roll, that makes your sort of positioning a little bit weirder. And then it's like, well, also the guy with the ball in his hands is LeBron freaking James. So it's like all of these options you have to keep in your head yeah. at the same time. And then, of course, the help side defense is like, all right, do I suck in to help? And it's right. like, well, yeah, you could do that. But the greatest passer of all time is going to find an open three-point shooter. Wait, so Larry Bird was in that game? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Jokic just playing? Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give, me your, give me your deepest, darkest Zion thoughts right now. Listen, if I'm... New Orleans, all of this kowtowing, panicking, all of this stuff that I was doing before, I got to stop. I need to stop. This team is nowhere close to contention. 
bringing Zion back is not going to change their fortunes that much. This dude is constantly hurt. He's constantly out of shape. Relax. We're the only people that could offer you 200 mil off the bat. God only knows when your next injury is going to happen that could be as fatal and scary as possible. And that's not wishing anything on him. But it's like, take a deep breath. Yeah. Please. Yeah, don't rush Zion back. You're going to you're gonna be in the lottery, and you'll probably be don't one of the six worst Zion teams. rush Zion back and stop making moves because it might help Zion win. Get guys that make sense next to him. Yeah. If not, help the team win. Uh, just take a deep breath, New Orleans. That's that's all I would say to them because, like, oof, it's bad over there. <sighs> the foot thing was ludicrous. We find out about the foot, what, three weeks before the season? They're that's like, crazy. it's a Jones fracture, but it's fine. He'll be ready opening day. It's like, what? I, I follow sports. <laughs> a Jones fracture is not fine. Derrick Henry just got one. They weren't like, right. he'll be good in three weeks. No, They're like, he might be not- back for the playoffs. We don't know. Right. And the Pelicans are like, no, it'll be fine. Should be around opening day. It's like, all right, so he can't exercise with a broken foot. The foot's going to take a while. It's just, it's a shit show. It's a bummer. Um, people need to settle down on the Zion versus Ja. Oh, you people, everyone was taking Zion first in that nah, draft. come on. That was, there was, uh, that was it was a not an argument. Let's not yeah. recreate history. Nobody was ever thinking anything otherwise. It's a bummer, though. I like Stop. having healthy, good basketball players, and we're right. missing some this year. You know, on the other hand, there's been some fun, fun additions. The rookie class is good. I mm-hmm. like that Anthony Edwards is, although last night wasn't great, but I like that Anthony Edwards has blossomed a little bit. Me and, too. In year two, Lamelo, same thing. So of course, there's some he, good ones. Yeah, Charlotte has been a surprise for me in the sense that I was like, man, it's still kind of a young team, and like you're gonna be relying upon Lamelo a lot. Like, how yeah. good? can they really truly be? But they've been way feistier than I expected them to be to start the season. And LaMelo looks amazing. And, you know, the best thing is, like, his jump shot is real. Like, yeah, if I like it. It, it. The versatility that he shoots it with is, like, I can come off screens, I can do it off the dribble, I can spot up. I'm like, damn. Like, having that weapon with his playmaking and he's, like, showing flashes of finishing at the cup, which, you know, a guy who's as huge as he is, you would hope that he would become really good at it. That's fun. That's awesome. Well, we'll see. Because Hayward has to play an entire season. Right. Let's let's see that happen. Tell you this. I'm going to leave you with this. Miles mm-hmm. Bridges. A little Sean Marion-ish. Little, good, good Sean Marion or bad? Good Sean. Good okay, mid-2000s. Okay, okay. Like it's, okay. He's kind of moving to that territory for me where he's just this crazy athlete who's kind of figured out how to impact both Got ends. You. Yeah. And is really weirdly consistent. That that yeah. was the piece. He was like, to me, a feast or famine guy. And then second half of last year, started to put some steps together. And now seems like a guy who might make an all-star team at some point. I did not expect this. Well, it's rare that we, and Sean Marion is pretty instructive of this, in that it's rare that we get the combination, these three combinations of motor, like crazy high motor, um, crazy athleticism with IQ. Yeah. Right? Like, you combine those three. Th- it's rare that we see that combination of guys who just never stop playing hard, are on, you know, in the top 2% of NBA athletes and nowhere to be 
understand how to read offenses and defenses. You know, it's it's cool. Like, watch him drop, like, 25 over and over again. I'm like, whoa. Like, how I like how hard he plays. Had, had that in him. It, it, it's, yeah. it's cool to watch. I'm happy for Charlotte. Because for a while, it's just been, you know, a bunch of Cody Zellers. And, yeah. You know, guys that were cool that they drafted that just didn't didn't ultimately end up mattering. But to get, you know, LaMelo and Bridges and to watch it all come together the way it is, is pretty cool. They also caught a massive break. Wiseman over LaMelo. Oh, man. And I was in the Wiseman camp. I, that's a, <laughs> I'll take the huge L on that one because LaMelo, man, tough one. That's the draft. The draft breaks your heart or it makes your decade. You just never know. All right, Waz, you're going to be on Ringer NBA show this week, right? Yes, sir. Of course, you can find me on group chat on the Ringer NBA show. Uh, that's on all of our podcast feeds and networks. And then, of course, check out the YouTube show, Four yeah. Core Fits, every single Friday. Last week, we had Ronnie Cycli on. This week, we're talking to Donovan Mitchell. Ooh. We, we talked to Kelly Oubre the other day. Yeah, check us out on Four Core Fits. I'm not invited on full court fits because I've been wearing jogging pants for like a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll figure out we'll figure out a way to incorporate your expertise somehow. <laughs> Just my jogging pants expertise. All right, Waz, great to see you. All right, later, y'all. All right, Jake Paul is here. I have a lot of questions for you, but the, the amazing thing to me, I'm going to start here. You and your brother you've kind of figured out this boxing thing. You've figured out how to juice a sport that, you know, when I was growing up in the seventies and eighties, there were big fights all the time. They were on all these different networks. They really mattered. And now it's kind of faded away. It's harder and harder to have events. Wait, did you stumble into this or is this something as you went along, you were like, holy shit, we're actually doing this. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just marketing at the end of the day. And you have to make people care or form an opinion or hate you or want to see you lose. And that's what you know, I've sort of mastered. And we're entertainers at the end of the day. That's why I moved to Los Angeles was to become an entertainer. 17-year-old Jake, big eyes. I was like, I want to act. I want to do YouTube. I want to blah, blah, blah. Boom. One thing led to another. Of course, we lead, it goes to fighting. You know, if you're walking down the street, you see two people fighting. Everyone stops, pulls out their phones, and watches it. It's one of yeah. the only things in the world that will draw everyone's attention right away. And so that's why I love it. And we've just found a way to make people care, and we're good at it. You know, I'm four and zero, undefeated, um, and. I've only been doing this now as a professional for less than two years and have had some of the biggest fights uh, this year alone. So it's just picking up steam and I'm training my ass off every single day, twice a day. And I love it. Was this one of those things you always thought you would be good at it or you were training because you want to do it once and you were like, wow, I'm actually good at this. Maybe I should pursue this. Yeah. So I, I grew up and I was wrestling all the time and playing football. I did all sorts of sports. So I was always athletic. And, you know, as a teenager, you would get into fights in school or whatever. You know, you would do that game where you punch your friends in the bicep 
and you see like who can last the longest. And I always last the longest. People are like, wow, you hit hard, you hit hard. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until I was, I think, 21 when these YouTubers uh, called out my brother and I to fight. And yeah. we signed the contract. And literally the next day is my first day of boxing. You act uh, like we didn't get that fight in the Simmons house because I have my son who now just turned 14. He was on it from the get-go. He was he was following all this stuff, all all the feuds. And what was amazing to me is him and his friends, they all knew what was going on. And I was like, what is, am I entering an alternate universe? Like they figured out a way to get 10 to 12 year olds to really care about fights, which is impossible. Yep. And, and that's, and that's the beauty of it. And that's what I wanted to do now. The evolution of this was like, it started off as a one fight and then boom, we realized we just broke the record for the most amount of pay-per-view buys in an amateur event ever. Mm. And it was massive. We were getting more views on the press conference than Floyd Mayweather and McGregor's press conferences. So we were like, okay, there's clearly something here. And we love it. And we just ran, ran with the wind. Uh, you know, I, I TKO'd my opponent and it was one of the greatest feelings I, I've ever had in my life. I just proved people wrong because there's always been a ton of hate against me. People, you know, pinning me down. I've had a target on my back and I've always sort of been like the villain role. And so boxing, you know, fits perfectly with that. And there's enough, no one can stop you but yourself. And I, I love that aspect of it is as hard as I work. I'm going to get that same exact amount out of the sport. Yeah. You and your bro coming up, you're basically, you're 16, 17 as all this new technology is swinging your way, right? You, the Instagram is already in place. Twitter's in place. TikTok's coming. Facebook is probably peaked by 2016, 17, but you have all these devices. The phones are moving your direction. YouTube obviously is massive. and it feels like your generation was the first generation that just took advantage of all these things. And at the same time, you're, you're, you're making mistakes in real time. This is the cancel culture stuff's really starting to kick in like 2017, 18 range. People are just getting mad constantly. And at some point it either seems like it breaks you or you kind of figure out, all right, where do I fit in in this whole thing? And one of the things that I thought was interesting about both you and your brother is you both had these moments, you worked through them. And you kind of figured out like, all right, I'm just kind of going to kind of own this. This is a roller coaster ride. People might hate me one day. They might like me the next day, but I'm on the roller coaster. I'm not getting off. Is that, is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, 100%. And the audience is very fickle. You know, yeah. one minute they love you, one minute they hate you. And so you can't get too attached to the highs or lows. You just got to know who you are at the end of the day. And that's, that's what was hard. You know, it, it was rough at first going through these canceled moments and being hated on. And, you know, I had no one to look to, to or talk to about this because it was the first time that kids this young were, you know, exposed on the internet for everything they've done and, um, or not done, you know, people right. make shit up all the time. So it's like this fake stuff's happening, this, or oh, what's going on. And, it's this crazy life and LA is full of sharks. And it was a lot. It took a, it took a big toll on like my mental. I, I developed like anxiety and like was just scared all the time and living in fear. And 
it, it was a hard thing to go through, but it made me super, super strong. And I had to, over the years, figure out who I was and truly love myself to the point where it doesn't matter what the Twitter people say because it's or not YouTube real. comments, all that stuff. Yeah, but you it's can see real. you can see how it broke some people, right? Because I think it broke a lot of people over the last six, seven years. I mean, tons, dozens, and, and you see, you hear some really bad stories, some really sad stories. It's not easy, man. Like I, people always ask me, you know, what what do I have to do to be the next Jake Paul, or to, I want to be like you? I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> You, you don't like the pressure that I put myself through and the things that I've endured. I'm a strong person. I was raised by, by my dad who was in the army strict. We like worked for everything we had. I'm super strong, thick skin. And there was even points where I was like, yo, I'm, I'm good. Like I'm going to go live in the woods <laughs> and get rid of all of this and, and, and run away from it because that's where, where it pushes you at some points. And I feel like a lot of kids, on TikTok or the new, the new YouTubers, people who are becoming famous who have to go through some of that negativity or have some big controversy, you know, they, they're traumatized for the rest of their lives from. Right. Yeah. I just, even watching my kids relationship with the people they like on TikTok, on YouTube, they'll, they'll come and go in six months. It'll be somebody else. Like I remember my son when he was like, I don't know, fourth grade, maybe third grade, fourth grade, he had, your brother was selling all the merchandise and he had like the, what was the Logan gang or something? He had like uh, the, the low the, gang. Yeah. The low gang. Yeah. He had the low gang backpack. And then all of a sudden he was like, yeah, he's out. I'd like somebody else now. And it was like watching people break up with, you know, girlfriends when they're in high school or something, they would just move on from person to person that they liked. And I can imagine like when you're in the middle of that as an influencer, and you're the hot thing for a second and then it's somebody else. And it's like, well, wait a second. I'm still here. I have all these followers, but you feel like you're losing juice. You guys have always been able to kind of maintain the juice, which I think is pretty unique. Yeah, it's hard, man. We've always reinvented ourselves and uh, we're willing to, to adapt and change. And now we've gotten to a point where after however many years of doing this, six, if it, seven years now, we're, we're solidified you know, solidified, uh, whatever you want to call it. We're solidified yeah. in the, in the social media fame celebrity world, but it took a while to get there. And there were moments where we like fell off or people mm. didn't care as much as they did anymore. Uh, or they hated us for a second. Uh, but, but to me, like, I like that challenge that I was like motivating for me to like be all the way at the top. No one messing with me. I was getting, 400 something million views a month on YouTube for like a year straight. And I was, boom, it was me and my brother just running YouTube. And then you see all these other people come in and yeah, we had to change, adapt and, and overcome. And a lot of those people who sort of took over, very few of them are around today. Yeah. After you have to keep on changing in this landscape and in this environment. And you know, YouTube used to be the number one thing. Now, the, the most viewed app is TikTok. Everyone's on TikTok. So, mm. you know, I've sort of grown off of social media. I made a decision two years ago uh, when I started full-time professional boxing. I was like, I'm done with YouTube. I'm done with doing social media. I'm going to focus on this and do this full-time because I love it. And 
there's no uh, dead end in boxing. If I want to make $10 billion in boxing, I can. If I want to do that as a YouTuber or a TikToker, no one's done it. No one's gotten even close to making, you know, 500 million. Mm. Uh, so for me, I saw that and I saw that you had to keep on posting and it was a vicious and never ending cycle. And the minute you stop posting, you, you, no one cares anymore. And there's, there's right. a thousand, a thousand other people right there behind you to keep on posting content. And so I made the decision, I'm done with this. I'm full-time boxing and best decision I ever made. And I've always had my finger on the pulse of like what moves to make at the, at the right time in my career. And it, it's paid off for sure. Well, the good news though, is you have like a war chest of followers on all these different platforms that you can tap into whenever you need them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I still mess around with some content and yeah. obviously my content is now sort of based around the fight game. Yeah. Uh, but there, there was a period for six months where I wasn't posting basically anything. I was like, yo, I need to learn how to become a professional fighter. And yeah. I was training nonstop, even when I didn't have a fight plan. Uh, and that, that's really what no one saw because I yeah. knew that this skill of boxing will be something that can last me forever. You know, people, people still want to see Mike Tyson fight till this day. You know, people, still, <laughs> including me, I'm, re I'm ready for it. Exactly. So, you know, that's what I wanted to build. And I, I wanted to build equity in something other than content. And by the way, it, it wasn't ever really who I was. You know, I feel so at home with this fight game. I feel like I can finally be myself. I think a lot of times on social media, I was playing a character. I was doing cringe things to get more views. Like you said, it's like a, you have yeah. to wake up every day and make the most viral video. And so I was doing things that weren't authentic to who I was. And now I feel like I can fully be myself and I'm happy and I love what I'm doing. I would wake up some days and be like, man, I have to film a video today. Like, this is going to be so annoying to try and piece this all together and make something entertaining. Uh, so, and the fans you know. can, the fans can sense that when people are going through the motions with that stuff. Cause I've heard my daughter mention that with certain people that she likes where she's like, I don't think they like doing it anymore. I think they're doing it just cause it's kind of their job, but I can tell they don't yep. care as much as they did. Yep. A hundred percent. Like they're an autopilot. And, yep. And, and authenticity is the key right now to you know, our generation and the generations right. above people, just, just everything. It's the key to everything right now. People want authentic, the authentic version of you or whoever you are. They don't, people can sniff out the, the bullshit now and, and no one wants it. Right. And people talking about issues they've had, problems they've had, stuff like that. That's actually, we, in 2021, it's accepted and encouraged to talk about, yeah, this, that. What would you, what would you tell 17-year-old Jake if knowing now you're seven years later, what advice would you give 17-year-old Jake knowing what's coming? I would say take longer to trust people and surround yourself with 
a lot smarter people than you mm. and slow down. I think I made so many of the mistakes that I made because I was just trying to do everything and conquer the whole world literally in one year, <laughs> uh, which I mean, it was good and bad. I was very ambitious, but I think when you're young and you don't have, you have any idea what you're doing, because I really didn't, you know, I, I came from a family where we lived in a bubble and my dad was a roofer. My mom was a nurse. They didn't know anything about business or Hollywood or anything. So I was super ambitious, which was great. But I think that could also shoot you in the foot when you're super ambitious. Uh, but then you have no idea what you're doing. So you're going to make a lot of mistakes. I think you can learn from those mistakes, of course, but uh, just slow down. And there's time. Everyone, everyone should take their time and surround themselves with smart people. Yeah, because you get once you once you hit that first stage, you have that first wave of people coming in like, hey, man, let me do this. Let me do that. Let me be your manager. Let me whatever. And usually it takes a while to realize, oh, I should yeah. just get the best people. <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe I should have the best lawyer. Maybe I should have the best business person. Yep, it's hard because you you want to, you know, put your friends on or your yep. friend could be your manager or you want to start this business with your friend who also has no idea what they're doing because that's going to be more fun. Like, no, like cut the friends shit out there. There's very few friends in, in this world actually, and take, take longer to trust people. And, uh, everyone's, everyone's going to want to hunt you down and have some opportunity for you or yeah. some stupid appearance or some stupid little job or gig or idea. Just, Trust your gut and, and your heart on people and what you're doing just in general. What's your biggest regret as a business decision? Was there ever like a Jake Paul liquor or J a Jake Paul uh, bar in Cleveland? What was your biggest business mistake? Ah, man. Jake, Jake Paul body cream? I think, um, I think team, just Team 10. I don't know if you know it about team 10 but yeah tell, i know it but tell the listeners because some people probably don't know yeah so basically i was going to be like the dr dre of the social media space so right. i came in i was famous on social media whatever i had a bunch of followers and my idea was i'm going to sign a bunch of people underneath me and put them on get them brand deals grow their following create content with them and everything's going to be great. We're all going to live in a house. It's going to be like sort of like a reality show. And we're all going to be like best friends. And boom, it's all going to blow up. Which it did. But when you hand you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds millions of dollars and millions of followers and yeah. you put them in a house in Los Angeles where there's greedy people all over the world and you know people in the house start hooking up and causing trouble and doing stupid shit it, it was just like a total nightmare uh right because you're but, also you're the you're the most famous person and if anybody else either does anything wrong or they end up they they screw up with they're not showing up on time doing whatever it's on it's on you ultimately 
you're the one, you're the only one that's going to get blamed for any sort of failure creatively. Yep. So I was, I was like the dad basically. Yeah. And which didn't work because I was like their friends. <laughs> but you were but like 22, to, right? Yeah. 21, no, I, 22? I was like 20. I, or I was like yeah. 19 or 20. So oh yeah, it, it just didn't work because I like created rules and was like, no drinking, no smoking. No, everyone has to be up early. We have to create this much content every day. I was running it like a business. Yeah. And it was, and it worked, you know, we all blew up, but there was just so much like resentment and hate. And then people on the team would start fighting and then employees would start fighting. And it was just so much ego. And it it was just like, seriously. And yet, and yet the idea got ripped off by multiple other people. Yep. Right. Yep. So that inspired, uh, this, the whole like wave that we saw this past year on TikTok, where there was like a bunch of creator houses. Yeah. Uh, Like one of my employees, my former employees at Team 10, years later came and started the the biggest TikTok house. Uh, But same, same exact thing. Like I did everything to try and make it work. Like I had counselors come to the house to talk to people. Like I, I did every, I had professional business people. I, I did fun activities that bro, I did everything to try and make this company work and it just didn't. So that's what you saw with the TikTok houses as well. They all fell apart yeah. in, in even a shorter amount of time. Well, I know they pissed off a lot of people in LA too. Because whoever the neighbors were for whatever those houses were, were furious they were over mad. and over again. Yeah, <laughs> they drew the they drew the short straw with the whole thing. Name me one thing you're better than your brother at, and one thing that he's better than you at with all this stuff. I mean, just off top, boxing and, and business are sort of my forte. You know, he hasn't like won a boxing match yet um he's a great boxer just i've put in way more time and then i'm I'm just in the trenches in venture capital um and and have always been an entrepreneur but he is way better at like creative and you know photos and videos and just creating in general he's more of like an artist uh, yeah, I'm actually like I, I'm wowed by him sometimes with his artistic ability. So we're we're sort of yin and yang in a in a weird yeah. way. Yeah. What uh? What's the biggest fight you ever had with him? Hmm. Did, was there ever a time when you guys didn't talk <laughs> for like a month? For sure, for sure. It was over a girl. Uh, oh no! And we were we were pissed at each. Yeah, we were pissed at each other for like a couple months, but yeah, that that was definitely a period where we where we didn't talk. How um, old were you we at were, that point? Again, same thing. We were young. Yeah, like twenty, and he was twenty two. Like brothers, being brothers with egos in Los Angeles. We were young, and we we learned from that <laughs> and realized like our our bond and friendship and brotherhood is way more important than any of this outside stuff. You know, at the end of the day, we've gotten so far, but you know, being brothers is way more important and what makes us more happy. 
I thought that was the code of the brothers that no girl could get between two brothers. I can't, I yeah. can't believe nobody, obviously nobody told you guys. It's pretty hard. No one told us. No <laughs> one told us. Otherwise we would, everything would have been fine. But, uh, I guess, I guess we learned on our, on our own and now we could tell our kids. I mean, that's basically the plot of Scarface, even though they weren't actually brothers, but they were Tony and Manny. And then the sister, and then all of a sudden, you know, that's, that's how it goes. Um, what are, so you're in LA for good? Cause you're a Cleveland guy. No. So I, um, I moved to Puerto Rico, uh, earlier this year. Oh, I knew that. Um, yeah. 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 So just like made the decision to leave California and specifically Los Angeles, just cause I wanted to become the best possible boxer that I could be. And California just what wasn't Los Angeles wasn't the spot. There was too many friends too many distractions. My next door neighbors, like were throwing a party every night and they were our friends. It just wasn't the right environment to, to be around. And uh, I sought for isolation. And that's why I found myself here in Puerto Rico and fell in love with it because I can fully train nonstop and focus on myself and become the best boxer here on, on this island you know, where I'm totally locked in day in and day out. So what's your, what's your plan with boxing? Because the criticism to this is like, well, when is he going to fight somebody? Well, what, what happens if he fights, you know, it's like, it's like these MMA guys and stuff, but what happens if he actually fought a real boxer, he'd get killed. What is your timeline for, do you even want to go down that road or is it just so lucrative the way it's going now? Because people want to see you. You're always, there's always some other name and this could go on for the next few years and you're going to make a ton of money. What, how far does this go? No, yeah, look, I've always stepped into the unknown with my opponents. I've always challenged myself more and more each fight. And that's what I'm continuing to do now. And yeah, the, the criticism was, you know, fight someone harder, fight someone harder. So I fought Tyron Woodley, five-time UFC champ. Cool, I beat him. Now the you criticism got, by was, the way, you got tagged in that fight once and you took it. I was impressed. Like he did yeah, get look, you one time and you kept coming. Look, it's boxing, right? And I've been hit way harder and sparring and it, it looked a lot worse than it was just because like it knocked me off balance and then I like fell into the ropes, but I, I was fine. You know, I, I take shots. I have a good chin and that's, that's Tyron's hardest punch, you know, that, yes. that he's famous for is that overhand right that knocked out that that's why he became UFC champion. So it, look, it took it. No problem. Didn't even get knocked down and we keep fighting. I, I win the rest of the rounds, but you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing with Woodley in that fight. I've seen all your fights, by the way. Um, I think there's a fear of getting knocked out by you with some of these guys where there's a level of caution that he had that I could see where he's just, you know, if, if he was really trying to win that fight, I, at some point he's got to trade bombs with you for like a minute, but I didn't think, I think he honestly didn't want to have what happened to Nate Robinson where you become yeah. a meme for the next week. So I felt like there was, he was a little bit, had the safety valve on and that was why you controlled the fight because you didn't, you were going at him the whole time. And I, I didn't feel like he totally wanted to trade with you. No, for sure. 
And, you know, that's partially what we implement into our game plan. People get gun shy from me because they feel my power instantly. You know, and I can sit here and brag about myself, but the proof is in the pudding. My jab is like a right hand. And so as Mm. soon as I hit Tyron with that, he immediately was like, oh shit, I see it in their eyes. It's one of my favorite things when I'm going to fight someone, these tough guys, you know, as soon as I hit them, they're like, well, I've never been hit like that. Mm. And that's my, that's part of my secret sauce is I really truly have this talent of, of power uh, and speed and timing. And it's got, it's God given. You can't really train it. You either have it or you don't. And so boom, as soon as I hit him in that early round, boom, right hand to the body, he's feeling that to his body. And he's like, yo, I don't want to get hit in the head with that punch. Right. So yeah, he immediately, you know, is just gun shy and doesn't, doesn't want to trade back and forth. Yeah. But, but then he wanted a rematch and it was like, dude, you, you just had eight rounds. We, we've already, we've yeah. already seen this fight and you never really totally wanted to trade punches with this guy. So I'm not, I don't want to pay for that again. Yep. And he, he just wants the payday. Yeah. Exactly. That. But I win the fight, you know, my, my, my first, uh, my first time going past two rounds, great learning experience against a, a, a tough guy who came ready to fight who yep. was in shape. And the criticism was, okay, fight a real boxer. And that's what it sort of always has been. So, boom, perfect. Tommy Fury, 7-0, and undefeated fighter, same weight, same height, same reach. You know, comes from a legendary bloodline. His brother's Tyson Fury, the heavyweight champion of the world. If that's not a real enough boxer, then I don't, I don't know what is. And so I've always stepped up to the occasion, and people have all of these things to say you know, and criticisms and they want me to do this, this and that guys, it's only been 18 months since I fought my first professional fight. And so just take it, everyone take a deep breath. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna get harder and harder and harder opponents, but most fighters in my position are fighting four round fights. Tommy Fury is a perfect example. He's seven and oh, but he's never fought more than a four round fight. These fighters fight trash cans, tomato cans to build and pad their record. So it looks good on TV when they say they're undefeated and they got all these knockouts. That is not what I'm doing. Everyone's watched my fights since my first one, which is unheard of. Name Floyd Mayweather's first fight. Name Javante Davis's first fight. Name Mike Tyson's first fight. You can't do it. So people have been following my career and that's why there's so much criticism early on. And normally I would take my time all the way up till 15 fights and then fight someone good. But I chose to fight a five-time champion in my fourth fight. And now I'm choosing to fight an undefeated young prospect, you know, who's, who's supposed to beat the shit out of me on paper. He's got an amateur career. He's been doing this his whole life. Yeah. His brother's champion. His whole family has a lineage of fighting. So I'm I'm stepping up to the occasion and I know I'm going to win. That's the funny thing about it. I think Sugar Ray Leonard was the last guy who people saw every one of his fights because he came out of the Olympics in 76 and immediately was on CBS and everybody loved him from the Olympics. That was the last time. I, it's a good point. Like even Mike Tyson still had to go like 10 and 0, 11 and 0 before he went on people's radar. Yeah. Um, I'm throwing an idea at you. You've probably thought of it. 
Why isn't there a celebrity, a celebrity, like a real celebrity championship belt that basically, like, because you kind of have the unofficial version of it now, right? Why doesn't it actually just exist? And everybody who's not an actual life, now you have probably higher hopes than that. It sounds like you want to actually eventually at some point be a real professional boxer, like the whole thing, like you're going down that road. But why couldn't there be a celebrity champ where it's just like, all right, these famous people that got into the sport and that person is the champ. And that's that's who you have to go through. He comes in with a belt. He's got the celebrity belt. Like I would actually, I that would actually make sense to me. We'd have rankings. I'd want to know where Lamar wrote him. Is he like, is he in the top <laughs> 10 yet? Is he still 19th? What but it could that ever happen? Because it does feel like it's not unrealistic. Yeah, I mean. The the issue is a, a lot of things. It's like these celebrities sort of want to dabble. They see the limelight and the money that it makes. Yeah. And so they want to do like one fight. But once they get into the training and they realize how hard it is, you know, that's sort of where it gets and that, cut Then off. they're good. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, there's a risk in losing, right? Like... If they lose, they're going to look stupid and they have to go back to the, whatever career that they did before and everyone's going to make fun of them. So a lot of them aren't willing to risk that. And then the biggest problem is these celebrities demand so much money because of their ego and they think they're worth so much money. So they'll demand two, three, four, five million dollars. But then they only sell like 50,000 pay-per-views. Yeah. Which you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't add up, you know, there's a whole lawsuit from these celebrities, these little TikTokers who fought. Uh, and, oh, and I'm following is, that one. I love that one. That was, that was the most obvious lawsuit that was ever going to happen. You could tell literally. it was a disaster. We tried to download that app and it didn't even work. We had to watch it on a computer. It wouldn't work on a TV, whatever thing that was. It was an immediate disaster. Yeah. So, I mean, and I told the guy before, he thought he was going to sell 2 million pay-per-view buys. And I was like, you'll be lucky to sell 200,000. They ended up selling like 100,000 or something like that. And they promised all of these celebrities money. None of them got paid. It's like this whole disaster. So everyone has the bad taste in their mouth from that. And it that's the thing is people don't realize how hard it is to actually sell pay-per-views. Just because you have followers doesn't mean that they're going to watch you fight. Right. What I've done over the past two years is create a strategy to change my audience. And I've changed it from the digital, you know, YouTube audience to an actual sports fan base where they care about me as an athlete and are willing to put money down. You know, the 30, the 30 year old male has $60, $70 to pay for a pay per view. You know, these 16 year old girls or 13-year-old girls who follow Bryce Hall on TikTok, they're not going to pay to watch his pay-per-view. And they probably probably don't even have the money to pay or they're they're technically savvy enough to where they're going to pirate the stream. And they didn't do a good job of, you know, handling the piracy. So all these kid geniuses now who can look up a million things in a minute, just watch illegally on YouTube or wherever, wherever it's streaming for free. Yeah. Or they have, in my case, my son just telling me to order it, but that, I don't think there was a lot of me. Cause I actually stupidly ordered that one, 
but I don't think there was, I don't think that was a giant audience of people, people paying for it. Um, it seemed like a lot of people cut corners and then it didn't work on top of it. Um, so you have this fight on December 18th. The other smart thing you did, you hooked up with Showtime. So you have the credibility, you know, the technology is going to work, all that stuff. What, what does 2022 look for you? If look like for you, if you win this fight on the 18th, man, I think genuinely, I think I'm going to take some time off. You know, I said I was going to take some time off after the Woodley fight, but then I just felt good and wanted to keep going, but I've just been going nonstop. You know, I haven't been on vacation since I moved really to Los Angeles. So it's been like seven years and I feel like I finally had a spot where I deserve that. And just like spend some time chilling, to be honest. And then who knows, I might fight at the end of the year, uh, you know, if there's, if there's an opponent. Um, but I'm really behind on my business stuff just because when you're in training camp, it's hard to manage it all. Mm. So I'm going to get back into the emails and the meetings and uh, the long-term business building probably in 2022 and just take some time off and kick it. That sounds like the answer from somebody who sold a lot of pay-per-views with the last couple of fights. You've already yeah. moved into that Floyd Mayweather 40 fights in his career stage where you've had... Once you start, this is the problem with a lot of these guys. Once they start making real money from the pay-per-views, all of a sudden they're fighting once, twice a year because that's what they have to. But we have a couple of things before you go. One, uh, Browns, are you following or no? Do you have the, the DirecTV in Puerto Rico or you're out this season? Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm following. I'm following as, as much as I can. It's, you have to have like a VPN to watch it here in Puerto Rico. Oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, the, yes, the Browns are in trouble. May, Mayfield's got a ravaged left shoulder. Um, it it just it looks like they're in trouble. Beckham was trying to get traded this week. They didn't end up trading him. And that, but the good news, the Cavs, Mobley looks like a home run. So the Cavs might have another comeback in him because they got Evan Mobley with the second pick. Everybody loves him. So maybe that's going to be the team. Yeah, that, I mean, I'm I'm rooting for the Browns and the Cavs, obviously, but. I'm more, I'm more of a football fan and mm. it's, it's been tough to watch everyone just get injured. Like you said, and yeah, just man, everyone like dropping passes. There's drop passes all the time on these third downs. Yeah. Uh, it just, it, something's weird is going on in the league. I feel like there's like a shift happening with the talent. Like even the, even the chiefs are having such a rough time. So you know, it's a weird I, year. Like, there's no favorite in the AFC. Um, yeah. In the NFC, one of the best teams has a 44 year old quarterback. I I don't know what to make of this. I I forgot to ask you about LeBron. Any? Do you guys have a relationship with him? You and your brother? Or like, is the Cleveland thing just? Is there a Cleveland celebrity circuit where you guys all have to like be on the same text chain, or do you not deal with him? So they're 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 like sort of is. Um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit weird. Like some, some people are cooler than, than others. And I think, uh, it's not that big of a family, but LeBron, I think tweeted about my event when it happened. Uh, but he, you know, never, never spoke to him really. Um, 
Interesting. So a little standoffish, LeBron, with the Paul brothers. I mean, yeah, but like, I mean, it is what it is. Like, I don't, I don't take any offense to it. Like, the guy's busy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I don't expect anything from anybody. So, if if he never wants to talk to me, then that's cool. You know, if I if I see a kid coming up from Cleveland doing big things, and like, I was at LeBron's game front row, like cheering. You know, and if some kid was saying I was at Jake Paul's boxing match growing up, I would probably reach out and, you know, say something, but people are different. And I don't, again, I don't expect anything and I know he's busy and he probably, probably, you know, it is what it is. All right. I thought there was a whole Cleveland, Cleveland sports sports hierarchy. I thought you guys were all tight. Uh, Tell me about your foundation. Boxing bullies. Yeah. One one of my, uh, one of my prize things that I, that I've been wanting to do since I was a kid um, was create a foundation and finally was able to launch it this year. Um, and really our mission is to get boxing gloves and boxing out there to as many kids as possible, uh, to give them an alternative way to get rid of all their like extra energy so that it doesn't go into bullying and so that they can build themselves and become confident because that's what boxing did for me is I found out who I was and what I was made of in boxing to the point where I didn't necessarily feel the need ever to ridicule other people or to to be macho man in public. You you don't want that. And so we're just raising a voice against bullying because I used to bully when I was a kid and it was because I wasn't confident and I thought it was, I thought it was funny, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so when I got, when I started to grow on social media, people in my school started to like bully me and create fake accounts with like nasty names about me. And that hurt me. So I was like, wow, you know, this, this isn't cool. And cyberbullying is such a big part of this generation where someone can make a fake Twitter and just go write something nasty. And those mm. comments stick with you. Those things hurt. Um, and so I haven't really seen anyone talk about this and how big of a problem it is. And I, I just want to use my voice, my platform and everything I'm doing to, to raise awareness about it. Cool. What's the URL? Boxingbullies.com? Uh, boxing, yeah, boxingbullies.com. B-U-L-L-I-E-S. All right, cool. All right, good luck next month. Good luck with the fight. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. All right. Nice meeting you. Peace. All right. This podcast was produced by Kyle Creighton. Thanks to Big Waz. Thanks to Jake Paul. I will see you on Thursday with Million Dollar Picks and a very, 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 very special guest. Plus a third guest if Atlanta wins the World Series. I promised Rembert that uh, he could come on and do a victory lap about his Braves. But who knows? By the time you hear this, Maybe they won the World Series or maybe we're going to a Game 7. We will see. Good luck, Rem.